Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Let me welcome to the show. He is an actual doctor uh, who works with people who age, the aged, uh, gerontologist. Let me welcome uh, also author. <laughs> he does a lot of things because we got to do all of the things. We cannot just do one thing. We're not meant to do one thing. Let me welcome right. Dr. Nana Yao, Adu Sarkodi. That's what his children say. It, so I'm say it <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. Yeah. Good to be back. How are you? Yes. Smith has mastered your name. Sakoye, he says. Uh, something close to that. Um, but, and he keeps correcting me, but I'm going to say it phonetically because that's when I ask your children how to say it. That's what they say. Sarkozy. Yes, ma'am. All right. Uh, thank you for coming through. First of all, Medawase versus Madasi. You are Madasi. Madasi. Mm-hmm. You are from Ghana. I am born in Ghana, raised a little bit in Ghana, right? right. From mm-hmm. the tree tree. T W I is pronounced tree. Yes. Tree? Uh, Tree, tree. Like you have to do something with your mouth. It's you, almost you gotta, like you gotta, you gotta press like your lip and then like kind of spit it out. <laughs> you know what's tree. interesting about that? Um, those of us who were raised in this American culture, um, we are so lazy. We have been conditioned to be so lazy that we don't use our whole mouths for anything. You know, even okay. our palates are are lazy. You know, it's either salty or sweet. That's what I learned from Dr. <laughs> Dr. Senyata. We need the umami. We need the sour. We need the bitter. Right. We need all of those things because that awakens different parts of our salivary glands that also helps mm-hmm. with digestion. But even mm-hmm. our language, you know, from the, from the uh, houses, I think, uh, in South Africa, when they, when they, with the XH, which, yeah. which you have to click your tongue when you say Kosa Kosa, something like that. And now you're telling me when you say tree, you have to purse your lips. So say it. I, I saw it. I saw it written phonetically in the dictionary. And it's actually like you have to put a T in front and then it says C-H-W-E-E-E. So like tree. 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 Okay. That's, that's I, as, yes. you know, I said a couple of times, that's as close as you get to tree. When did you learn? And, and you came to talk about something else, but I'm going to keep you. We're going to keep talking because you're here and I appreciate <laughs> your, your time. And not that you're a proxy for all Ghanaians because you're not, but as a person that was raised in another, you, which language did you learn first? Did you learn, well, your, learned, your tribal language or did you learn yeah. English? I, I learned, I learned the tree first. Um, and then my, my parents speak Shripong. So even that, I learned a little bit about that. And then we lived in Accra. So I learned Ga too. So, and then, and then when you go to secondary, well, not secondary school, when you go to uh, elementary school, the equivalent, that's when you start learning English. And I remember learning a little bit of French as well. The only word I remember in French that I, I can keep in my head is like, la, 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 um, la chair or something like that. And then I got to sixth grade here and my teacher was um, part French. So she told us, puis j'allais aux toilettes in order to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing you learned, learned in English that you remember. Wow. Um, that's tough. Uh, probably, I don't know, maybe uh, candy, maybe. Wow, that's interesting. I think that's probably universal. <laughs> yeah, you know what's interesting about that? It's, you know, f- for me, I only speak really one language. I understand words in a lot of different languages, and I try to learn something in every mm-hmm. culture that I run into, and I always ask them to teach me how to say different things, like definitely thank you, you know, she she needs Sheshe, you know, in mm-hmm. Ch- in Mandarin, you know, you're gonna learn. Uh, I learned a little little Portuguese, you know, abrogado. I think I'm saying that correctly. I hope so. You know, you learn a little of everything. You want to say thank right. you in every culture, right. you know. Um, watching Snowfall, they were in um Ghana, and we were talking mm-hmm. with Gail Bean a few weeks ago, and she was talking, I you know. Mm-hmm. And as they were going through, and I was like, yes, they were actually in Ghana because I recognize all of these places. But you know, it's like Madase, Madase, and I was like, okay, yes, yes. What else should we know when we go to Ghana that will not will, will allow for them to people there to know that we aren't just, you know, playing at this culture exchange? You, you know what? I'm a foodie. So that's one way that I connect with other people in particular. So in junior high school, one of my good friends was from uh, Korea. So went to his house and with this weird smell in the house. I was like, what's that? And he said, oh, this is kimchi. So I got to eat kimchi. In college, we used to go to Little Korea in New York. So we go to get a bulgogli and a whole bunch of other little side dishes. So I connect with people that way. I uh, went to Japan, had the, the rice balls and the, uh, what is it? The, uh, the bean, the bean, uh, the bean buns, the red bean bun, things like that also. Um, used to travel to Chinatown in New York City. And then I would get the, the red bean, soybean kind of bun also. So I, I'm a foodie. When you go to Ghana, um, enjoy the food, enjoy the cuisine. 
if you come back to the States, go to New Orleans and then compare the two. So like my mom's uh, okra soup or okra stew versus traditional New Orleans gumbo. It's almost, almost exactly the same, almost yeah. exactly the same dish. So wow. just, you know, enjoy the cuisine. And uh, there was a, this spicy um, sauce that you put on everything. <laughs> I, call, I call it shit Yes. It, and, yeah, shit it, and, and shit is in there. No, no, no. no. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what is this? No, that's that's cooked down. That's cooked down. um, Let's say dry, dried shrimp. That's peppers. That's a lot of spice, a lot of garlic, a lot of other spices. And then you cook it down. So it's kind of like a a, a nice brownish, dark brown paste. And then you eat it with like kinke, with uh, fried fish, or you can mix it with wache, make it kind of spicy for you. So yeah, you can even eat it alone. So I eat it alone sometimes because it's still kind of hearty. Okay. Uh, Dr. Nana Yao is here. You, um, I brought you on, first of all, what other words, please, besides Madasi? And what's the difference between, because I've been on, on YouTube learning some words. So Meduase is, med, with the wo in it, the Meduase is proper. That's a proper thank you. It, it's more, it's more formal. So Medawase, Medawase, it's like, I'm, I'm thanking you directly versus Madasi is like, thank you. But it's all really the same thing. It's almost like the difference between, and, and I'm sure my Spanish speaking folks will get uh, mad at me for saying this, but it's almost like saying tu versus usted. Okay. Right? Got you. Usted is more formal, the tu is more yeah. polite, familiar. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. What else? Give us a couple other words for those who are traveling um, to Ghana. So, so you you are a teacher. So you chre, you teach people chre. So that's um, how, would, how would I how would pronounce you do it that phonetically? phonetically? Yeah, phonetically. So that's che, re. So I have to roll the R a little bit, chre, and then say it fast. Chre. 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 Uh-huh. <laughs> I struggle with American words. This is, all right, right I'm going to have to sit with that one. And then okay. when you wake up in the morning, that's anupa. 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 Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me that the inflections are also important. Like, yes. Like, like much like Mandarin is whether you go up or down, so yeah. there's a sing songy. There's a there's almost a rhythm in a in a. Ooh, I guess it would be like if you if you came to America and you ended up in the deep south, and you mm-hmm. had a, um, a hillbilly teach you English, right? <laughs> like how do you know if, if I'm not learning from somebody? Do you know what I'm saying? I will, like, I will tell you the best the best tree, the best tree you will hear is from a small child who is probably with their friends that's cussing everybody out. It, it is so beautiful to listen to. And then when you understand what they're saying, it's like, oh, wait a minute. You shouldn't be saying those type of things. So if you ever get a chance to look on YouTube or Instagram or someplace like that, just, just listen to a small child speaking, like, really good tree. And it's just boom, okay. boom, 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 like playing the dozens. It's awesome. Oh, okay. So there is some music and some rhythm to it. Um, so I didn't bring you on for, for this, but you know, I, I would like you to drop in from time to time as I, I feel like I read somewhere that learning a language as you, especially as an older person awakens parts of your brain that are asleep and it, and it helps stave off some of this dementia. So I play a lot of word games. I was playing Sudoku. Now I'm doing Wordle. Like it's why I do this. I do this for me. I'm not really competing with anybody, even though I am undefeated and it's okay. You know, even though I didn't play six, 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 cause I'm not playing six, six, six. Y'all can do what you want with that. But you know, for me, it's, it's not, I'm not competing against anyone, but my own brain and keeping it awake. So I, right. I downloaded the Rosetta stone because I'm like, eventually I'm going to sit with that when I have some time. Cause I actually want to master it and I don't want to, do what I've been doing, which is try to fit it in. I actually want to master it because I've realized that you got to keep your brain active. Right. Thoughts on right. that? No, that's absolutely true. Um, any, any cognitive activity, whether it's learning a language, learning to draw, even drawing, uh, listen to music, um, all these things really help out doing word puzzles, it just challenging your brain all the time. And then one of the main things you could do as well is exercise, which I know you already do with your, with your steps. So a lot of aerobic exercise, uh, walking, jumping, uh, jumping rope, things like that. Those are really excellent. As long as you're pumping your blood and the blood gets to your brain and bathes the, the gray matter, as they say, that that's perfect to do. And as well as challenging your brain with all these different activities as well. Learning to play an instrument is also awesome too, right? Yeah, Even I some heard that. Yeah. With dementia, sometimes we get the best benefit in their cognition when we play things that they grew up with. So if you're uh, if you grew up in the 50s, playing 50s type music, 
often calms them down. If they love watching Westerns, uh, we play Westerns for them also. So whatever they used to love doing as a child or even as a young adult, those things are still embedded in their memories. So we try to bring those things out to make sure that, you know, we can use those to kind of uh, calm agitation or even let them, you know, enjoy their moments throughout the day. When do you, Dr. Danielle Adusa Cody, uh, when do you, when do people come to you? And are people bringing people to you or is it something that folk recognize on their own that they need to see you as a doctor? When do people see you as a doctor? So I, I'm, a, I'm what they call a geriatrician. Uh, my my uh, patient base or patient population is typically 65 and older. Wait, wait hold, on. To... Uh, hold on. Hold on. I called you a geriatrologist. Yeah, What's... I heard all of that. <laughs> okay. Why didn't you correct me? Because we weren't here yet. <laughs> okay. Ger- geriatrician. What? Geriatrician. Geriatrician, like a pediatrician, but with geriatrician. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. I got you. Okay. All right. Continue. I'm sorry. So, so typically people come to see me with uh, patients over age 65, um, but I'm family medicine trained. So I pretty much see all, all adults primarily, but my, my niche is 65 and older. My average patient population now is about 80, 85. So I'm in the oldest old uh, population too. Uh, and we we have the full gamut of folks. Um, I have a 96 year old that looks just like Jack Delane. He goes on cruises with his wife. He's been married for over 70 years and he's living the best life. I have a 57 year old who unfortunately is in a nursing home uh, and is not doing so well. So the full gamut service is uh, what we try to provide all the time. Um, typically uh, patients are brought in by you know their caregiver or they self-refer themselves, they come in also. And then we just try to you know see what we can do for them in terms of um, uh, lifestyle, uh, making sure they have longevity, uh, making sure they have um, a quality of life also. And that's really my main goal, to maintain quality of life. Sometimes people want to live forever. I, I thought at one point I want to live to 100. But then as I'm talking to my patients, I realize and I recognize that if I'm 100 years old, but my all my family are deceased and all my friends are gone, then what kind of life really is that? You know, you're by yourself, really. So now I'm actively changing my perception of what, what, you know, quality of life or longevity really means uh, as I get older. So it's also therapeutic for me Mm. to try to cheat them because I kind of understand how I'm aging as well. Uh, In residency, myself and my program director, we wrote a short article on the psychosocial aspects of aging. And one of the things I remember from that article in particular was that each age cohort thinks like the cohort ahead of them is old until you get there. And now all your friends are the same age, so you all have the same experiences. So now you're thinking, oh, no, the next age cohort is is old also. So we're always afraid about the next 10 years, the next 20 years, and so on and so forth. But the main thing is to kind of live in the moment and really enjoy what you have right now. And that's why the youth is wasted on the young sometimes. Yeah, I think, well, maybe. I Mm -hmm. I feel like we we don't spend enough time in community, which is why there's this fear around aging. I was just talking, I think it was yesterday or day before, Colleges now are making space for um, older people to be on campus. So there's mm-hmm. going to be a senior housing in several, I think, SUNY Purchase. Uh, there's several colleges already integrating old senior living on campus. Right. And I was like, that's right. brilliant because in that construct, and I always thought if I built a community, it would start with having older people with younger people with baby. Like it would, there would have to be a space where like, the, the daycare would be run by people 70, 80, you know, because right. that interaction, first of all, they know how to do the thing, right? Uh-huh. And it would keep them in a space with Engaged. young, you know, four, three, four-year-olds constantly teaching, which would, mm-hmm. you know, give them purpose to get up. Um, and being on a campus, I think is even doper because I, I had a 70-year-old woman audit my class and she brought so much, this is when Roe v. Wade was overturned, and mm-hmm. she talked about having a decision to not um, abort her child, and but that she didn't have a choice. She didn't have a choice. Right. And not right. that she would have, because she loves her daughter, but she didn't have a choice. And to see the 20-something-year-olds hear from a woman in her 70s about what she was not able to do and how this is horrific gave us such rich conversations that I love intergenerational classes, especially yeah. around these topics of today, and what better place than a college campus for older people to be? I think it's beautiful. That, that lived experience uh, exchange is, is 
priceless, right? They get to export, uh, impart their knowledge, real life knowledge about this, the contemporaneous time that you're talking about. And at the same time, if you have an older person who may be technologically challenged, then the younger students can also teach them how to work computer or something else like that also. So, they, so both parties are constantly learning all the time. It's always exchanging information, which is important. So for, for um, I brought you here to, to, to a little bit of talk about um, the Dalai Lama, but not really, you know, right. um, there was this exchange with a child last week and mm-hmm. I was, I was disturbed because the child didn't have agency to not accept this grown man kissing and then sticking his tongue out and asking him to suck it. Right. People were saying that, you know, when people get dementia or Alzheimer's, they sometimes have this, you know, uh, lack of barriers or decorum. And there's behavior like this that is quite frequent. Is that the case, Dr. Nanayao? In, in, in a word, yes. Um, but let, let's take it back a little further. So there are four main types of dementia. You know, obviously the most common is Alzheimer's that we all know about 50% of the time. And sometimes it coexists with what's called vascular dementia, which is dementia that happens after things like a stroke or uh, a lot of inflammation of the brain too. And then we have a frontotemporal dementia, which is more less common. And that happens in younger folks. And what happens there is there's a complete flip in your personality. So those people are more prone to the aggressive behavior, to some of these, what we call uh, inappropriate sexual behavior or um, uh, uh, behavioral psychological symptoms of de- uh, dementia. And then the last one is Lewy body dementia, which more looks like Parkinson's, where you have the rigidity, the stoop posture, the depression, and also the memory loss and the functional loss also. So dementia is really just the memory loss and functional impairment where you can't do things like you know dress yourself, feed yourself, clothe yourself, and really just live on your own primarily. Uh, in, in terms of the inappropriate sexual behavior or the behavior um, and uh, behavioral psychological uh, symptoms of de- depression, that's a mouthful. Uh, dementia, excuse me, <laughs> that is a mouthful. Yes, there are, are a wider range of changes that people go through. Uh, in terms of the sexual behavior itself, you know, there's a change in, in response to sex. People may not want the sex, people may not uh, be welcome to it, or it does a lot, a lot a loss of intimacy. They become, they may become more aggressive also. So there's a, that duality, either you become apathetic or you become more aggressive. You may mistake someone for someone else. So if you are, uh, I think the gentleman had mentioned before uh, that, that called in last time, he was saying that his mother would see someone and you know try to fondle them, right? So they may be thinking that person could be a relative or a past boyfriend or the past spouse or so on and so forth. Um, they could behave inappropriately in, in public, right? So the there's a disinhibition of the control pretty much. So we're just reacting on what we feel in the moment. What is happening in the brain, Dr. Nana Yao, that is creating that and how do we prevent it from happening? Cause it feels like it's more prevalent now than ever. Like I don't remember too much dementia and maybe people weren't living as long. Is, is there something in our diet? Is there something happening in society that is, and, and it's disproportionately with black people too. I, I read yes. a study that mm-hmm. black people disproportionately are getting these um, outcomes. I don't think we deserve that after everything we've been through in this country. We don't no, deserve absolutely that. Not. So, so the number one risk factor for dementia, all dementias is age. So we are living a lot longer. So just like if you have a, a brand new car, it's running nice and smooth, but as it gets older and older and older, it starts wearing down a little bit. So same thing with our organs and our brain in particular, right? Uh, you couple that with the Western diet, a lot of uh, sugars, a lot of fats, uh, a lot of uh, things that we shouldn't be eating. Um, then the sedentary lifestyle, we're not exercising as much. So we had just talked about aerobic exercise, uh, maintaining your brain uh, cognitive ability, things like that. Um, and then a lot of the things that, you know, the lifestyle things that we can impact, smoking, alcohol, drinking, lack of sleep, increased stress, all those different things play a role in dementia. Uh, in particular for African-Americans, we already have predisposition for the inflammatory problems like high blood pressure, diabetes. So if you think about it, we're mm. also living a little bit longer too. So it's all coupled together in this nice milieu mm. or this soup of, uh, of risk factors that leads to this issue. I, I won't say that there was less dementia 10 or 20 years ago, because as a matter of fact, every 20 years, the number of people in America or even the world doubles okay. who have dementia doubles actually. So it's been here. We just probably hear a lot more about it. Uh, can you stick around? Uh, and I want to sure. take calls 866-801-8255 because uh, besides m- music, learning a language and, and reading different things. Uh, we need some more action items. I like this, you know, 
attention to inflammation. Let's talk more about this. Um, tomorrow is Thrive Thursday. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Jalen Hurts' $255 million contract. Five years, $255 million. Philadelphia Eagles. Y'all know I don't watch NFL. Y'all know I'm not watching the NFL. I haven't seen one down of Jalen Hurt or his tongue. Actually, I've seen his tongue because he sticks it out a lot because he's a Q. I love that. Uh, but he's also, I'm going to talk about his agent, a black woman, got him that deal, okay? And they tweeted, uh, He, she said, does anyone know where I can get a Brinks truck? Urgent. <laughs> she found one. Jalen Jalen Hurt, go ahead with that. Uh, I'm so super, super happy for him, even though I will not watch one down of him playing. But I still, I love him. I love him. Uh, also, uh, J- D- Draymond Green has been suspended. I'm also very happy about that. Um, cause I think he's a, he's a hack. He's, you know, he's one of the players that, and I used to be one who did not very skillful, but you know, will do all of the dirty things to get, you know, like run their mouth, hack people, stomp on folk. Not that I ever stopped on anybody, but I can relate to him, which is probably why I don't like him. I was like, you know, it wasn't very good. And he's to me in the NBA annals of greatness. He's not. And he keeps doing these things. Didn't he punch his teammate this this year too? He punched his teammate. He's yeah, he's he's a blight on the on the team. Poor Warriors don't deserve this. Steph and them, them light skinned brothers do not deserve. No, I'm just not. I'm playing with the colorism. I'm not joking. I'm just joking. Don't don't get your panties in a bunch. But yeah, Steph Curry and Clay and them don't deserve uh, Draymond Green to be on their team. That's just my opinion. Y'all know I don't like him already. But um, and now Golden State is losing, and I think it's his fault. They lost with him. And then people are like, oh, he got kicked out of the game because he stomped on somebody's chest because they grabbed his leg. Remember he did that with LeBron? LeBron was like, mm, I'm coming for you. And he backed up. But then you're going to sucker punch a teammate? Corny. He's just really corny. But uh, they just suspended him uh, for game three. So there's that for stepping on Sabonis. And I want to talk about Jonathan Majors. Maybe I'll save that for tomorrow. And finally, finally, uh, Charles Stanley, who I did used to watch until he got maggot. Um, Charles Stanley, the preacher televangelist, cause you know, I go to church on TV and on the radio it used to be radio Baptist, uh, where I would attend now is, you know, YouTube Baptist where I go to church. I watch the, 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 cause I'm not breathing on y'all in the, in the sanctuary. We can gather two or more. We got technology now, but yes, Chuck Stanley has made transition 90 years old. Uh, his son, Andy's pretty, uh, interesting too. Uh, born in Drop Fork, Virginia. He was a senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Atlanta for 50 years. He was 90. He was going to be 91 in September. Uh, yeah, Chuck Stanley is no longer here. And I was thinking about that because um, Dr. Nanny Yao is here. Thanks for waiting. Dr. Nanny Yao Dusar Cody. He's a geriatrician. Uh, he deals with folk who are aging. And I was thinking about Jimmy Carter today because since he put himself into hospice, um, we haven't heard much from him. And I was thinking about how he, he has the highest IQ of any person that's ever been in office. He is one of the smartest presidents we've ever had. You can say what you want about his presidency. A lot of that or the damn horrible ass Republicans undermining him every step of the way and, and doing some dirty dealings with enemies of our state just so they can get Reagan in. But Jimmy Carter, I think he put himself into hospice so as to not burden his family. And you get, I remember when my dad went to hospice, because I was thinking today, hospice is where you go and you're really not going to live that long after you go into hospice. And when my dad went in, I didn't understand it all, but I know that those were some of the most amazing human beings that were taking care of him in his last day. They were so loving. There was one of the nurses singing to my dad and I, and I was like welling up because this lady cared for my father and all of them around the clock. Um, until he made transition. And um, I just think about how special you have to be to be a hospice caretaker. Um, D- Dr. Nana Yao, you, you don't, do you do that kind of work? Is that yeah. your, in your purview? Yeah, yeah. We, we have patients that, you know, we, we try to provide full, full access geriatric care, if I can call it that. So if you are able to come see us in clinic, we'll see you in clinic. If you can't see us in clinic because you're homebound, we'll come see you inside your house. If you are too sick to avail yourself of either environment and you need to be in an institution, institutional setting like a nursing home, you can come see us in a nursing home. And then at the end of it, if you need hospice per se, 
we have a hospice unit that we can transition you into. Now, I want to I want to just clarify really quickly about hospice because I know there's a lot of misconceptions about hospice out there. So it's a Medicare Part A benefit. So it's actually a benefit that's built into the Medicare system. And what it says is that two physicians, again, we're not God, but because of your medical condition, we think that whatever the diagnosis is going to be, you have less than six months to live based on that one diagnosis. So for example, if there's a brain tumor that we can't get to and there's no treatment for it, right, you may go on hospice because it may be detrimental to your life and it's just six months. Now, after six months, if you're if you're still alive, then you can get recertified to see if you're still, you know, declining and you stay on hospice. Prior to moving, prior to let's say uh, last five or seven years, I had a patient on hospice for at least five years. Oh, right? wow. But the regulations have changed a little bit. So now they're making it more specific for people who have, who are more imminent per se, right? So if you have some condition that medical science, medical care cannot alleviate you of, we can't cure it, we can't treat it, we can't surgically take it out. And if you're willing to go on hospice, then you know there, there is a benefit. And even after you pass away, your caregivers or your family have access to all the other services as well, especially a bereavement counselor as well. So it's not just you just go there to die. There's, like you mentioned, there's a whole gamut of services that surround hospice. And the people who do hospice on a regular basis, they are amazing, amazing, amazing people. Just, just what you just mentioned about the person singing to your dad. Um, those are kind of the small things that, you know, we, we have patients who may not have any family members. So the hospice nurses, or providers may be the only people there in their mm. last moments. Mm. Um, so it's a very impassioned <laughs> profession to be in hospice. Uh, but I want to make sure that people understand that it's not just someplace that you just go to die. It's a whole benefit package that you're available to. And if you meet the criteria, then yes, that may be something you may want to consider in addition to things like palliative care and so on and so forth. What What's the difference between palliative care and hospice? So uh, palliative care is more of, you know, the word palliation is, is to make better or, or to alleviate pain. Hospice is more, again, if you are in the, in the kind of the end of life course for you and you have less than six months to live per se. And let's say if you're, if you're imminently dying, that's where you go for a hospice. Let me, let me tap in. Cause you know, I'm, I was telling y'all in the break, I, I collect Avengers, people who are out there doing the best work. And I love giving voice and using, sharing this platform to, to do that. And now I have two of y'all, so I'm rubbing my hands together. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. I love, I love when she's here and she's back. Uh, let me welcome to the show. She goes by a doc DOC named Danny on the Twitters and she's pretty active there and you can check her out there. She's been here before. Let me welcome Dr. Danielle Hairston and let me give you her bona fides. She's the psychiatry residency director at Howard University, HU. You know. Okay. Hi. Hi, Dr. Hello. Hello. Thank you, you for having me back. Oh, um, I'll tell you that um, going to Trinidad Carnival was like one of the best things that ever happened in my life. I know. Oh, wait. No, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. This is what I love. You know, um, yes, we should have all of the conversations. So when did you go to Trinidad Carnival? So I went to Trinidad Carnival in 2020. I got back like 10 days before the world shut down. So I got back. I went to Carnival in Trinidad, like lived my best entire life. No sleep, party, party, like just utter and total joy and like just fun. Like for the culture, for the di like for the diaspora, like like no matter what country you're from, like party from, they start partying. I don't, I can't even tell you. Like they're like, yeah, the party starts at one a.m. The next party starts at six a.m. Like get your outfit, get your makeup. It there's no sleep. There's no. I mean, as a psychiatrist, probably right like, <laughs> getting your sleep. But for this little week, five day period, like no sleep, just straight fun food um dancing like and as um Dr. Sunyata said um my Calabash massive over here from DC she was like you know it's just like no body shaming everybody's welcome no matter how big small little whatever you're in 
you're accepted and it's just straight pure fun like that was so amazing and then the the world shut down and i didn't see people for like you know the next <laughs> two years two years later three years later so that was the your last memory of ridiculous wildness with people yeah so i'm so happy that i actually went this year you know for 2020 because who knew when it was going to happen again it was a it was an amazing experience that i recommend like i've done miami carnival I done well when we used to have DC Carnival like on Georgia Ave going past Howard mm-hmm. um growing up. But this is I, and I that you know I went to Rutgers, so Eastern Parkway, yes, all through college. But Trinidad, that no one I can't I no, there's nothing touching it. Like the just like fun and happiness that I I wish we had all the time as a people, like it's it's unmatched, I have to say. Yeah, I've done How Eastern Parkway, I've done Miami, I've done Carabana once, but yeah, I've never been to Trinidad. So uh wink wink <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> okay. Destination trip, y'all. Uh carnival in Trinidad. I don't know, maybe we might need to do a uh uh like I think about this audience, the folk that that listen that are dot that are in, you know, these are the people that I don't mind traveling with, you know, because uh again it they know the assignment do you know what i'm saying yeah. it's like yes we are here in community and we're going to service each other and also you know love one another and it's a, a wonderful thing and it sounds like the carnival in trinidad that was the edict that that was it and you i'm a pretty like mellow chill person but like it was exciting i went with like there's all types of people out there doctors engineers anybody just really like having fun and no matter what country you're from like you're just going to get into the vibe and you're going to have fun and i think that's that's something that's missing mm-hmm. in life is just that just straight having fun it the, you know the days can be long a lot of trauma, a lot of stress, and to just do something that is straight fun, like um, Marshall Montano, that was my, I was so excited to see him and it like walk past you. It was like, I was fangirling for sure. It was a, it was a great experience and it came at the perfect time because then there was a lot of a lot to sex. deal with. Yeah, let, yeah, me, yeah. let me, let me, let me, let me ask both of y'all, you know, as in you're in, both in professions, you're both doctors, both medical doctors, both went to medical school where, you know, we were talking, Dr. Carr and I last Saturday about the whole code switching. Cause people couldn't understand how Justin Pearson could talk like this and then be like, and I have a dream, you know, it's like, they don't get, you know, the, the ways in which we have to act uh, sometimes to, to navigate these very colonized spaces of expectation of our docility. This is what they, they demand our docility. They need us to be uh, in a, in a package that makes them comfortable, right. In order to, to get ahead. But I feel like we're entering into a, a, a new era. We're ushering it in. I feel like we are ushering in a new era where you can, um, there was a congressperson, I think somebody running for Congress that was twerking and people were losing their minds. And I was like, She's okay. In Congress. She's in Congress. She's in okay. Congress. Okay. She got elected. I, I didn't even know, but I was like, what's the problem? You know, the, so she can't govern cause she could twerk. I don't, I don't get what the, you know, but we've always had these, we call them double lives where you can go and let loose and then have to, you know, do other cultures not do this or is this unique to black people? I don't know what these other cultures do, uh, but because I don't know, I think some other cultures are wild all the time and it's just accepted because that's what they get to do. Um, but yeah, definitely it being your authentic self and being able to be your authentic self in a professional setting is important. That's why it's important for me to be a Howard. Like I can talk to my patients. Now I can do all the research. You can go and Google me and see what I've written and all of that because they always want to know what's the data. Like, do you have data to support that? Like (laughs) I have all the, I have all the data. I have all the letters. Yes. But to be able to be an authentic person in my position, I was just, I was just at Sankofa books with, um, my student for a little policy class on Monday. And she was like, Dr. Harrison, how could you ever leave Howard? Like, how could you go to another place? And I'm like, how could I? Because um, just to be able to be professional, but just to know that my professionalism does not have to be the same that you have at this these PWIs. Like that's something that is unique to a HBCU, HBCU or where there are Black 
physicians, black professors. I, it's an amazing experience that no, I don't think you're going to get everywhere. So for me, when we're talking about Hulu and this, I'm, I'm ready to see the Freak Nick because I'm younger and <laughs> I didn't get to see, um, I didn't get to go to Freak Nick. And my brother is was a, uh, a teenager when I was born, right? So he would get to go and do stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go to Freak Nick one day like him with his, and then, you know. There was no more Freak Nick. <laughs> hey, Dr. Nanny Yao, did you ever do a Freak Nick? No, I, I never, I never had the opportunity to do that. Look, look he said, never had the opportunity. You know, you know, bow tie wearing ass. All right, 866-801-8255. But you're in a fraternity, so I know there's a turn up. I know there's a turn up. That's okay, Uncle there, there, Phil. There's a time for everything. There's a time for everything. Yes, that's what they tell us. But is there though, or did they do there that is. to make sure that is there? Is there a time? You, you can, you can, you can let it bleed into other things. But you know, when you want to turn up, turn up. Like Dr. Harrison mentioned, going to Trinidad Carnival. That's when it's like straight full court press, no sleep, just having fun. But when you come back, you got to kind of ease yourself back into it. So yeah, there is a time for everything. And you do need breaks. You know, obviously you can't always be in mode all the time. So you need a time where you can decompress, de-stress, and then be yourself at all times. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's get back to what we were talking about. I brought um, Dr. Nana Yao in after um, the Dalai Lama. And there was two things with the Dalai Lama that disturbed me, not just to suck my tongue, but that we, pet, we put human beings. He's a human being. He is not divine. He is not uh, walking on water. He, even if he's a prophet, good. But I think we do too much of putting people on a pedestal, which is why we see the priests in the Catholic church. Now the Jehovah witness nine, the, you know, the, the Baptist ministers that done some strange things, you know, like there's a lot of these, um, I have sinned. Who was that? Jimmy, whatever his name was, was crying out there. The PTL folk, you know, there's all these, they're going to let you down, right? Because a human being, even Jesse Jackson got two babies out of wedlock. Like, He's a reverend. Like, I feel like, yeah, I have to do that. That this is a place where we put people on a pedestal and not understand that, you know, everybody chew up the meat, spit out the bones. Like nobody is divine. No one's greater than you. Like, I feel like we, we put people there so that we don't have to be good. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We don't, we don't have to do the work. What do you, what do you think about that? Dr. Hairston first. You know, I know they refer to him as his holiness. Um, I was seeing that all over Twitter. And but the reality is that he is a person and he is a person who's susceptible to anything else, just like everyone else. So I, I saw I was trying to understand because I saw a lot of posts about the cultural, like what is accepted culturally. And they do these little whatever these tongue things are that they don't they're not going to ever do that in my house or my family. But I see that that's in Tibetan culture they said that's acceptable but at the same time other people were saying dementia is going on here and this is what we both do is we both see patients who have dementia and something now Goldwater rule we don't know what the Dalai Lama has or I can't say that he does have dementia or he's just weird but I can say is that what we do see in dementia and this is when they call me this is when he might call me over is when there's this disinhibition um, and you can see all types of things. I think a lot of times people think about dementia as just like, oh, my sad little parents is here. Just, you know, they're just in the, but they can turn up. And that's when they're calling me. They're calling the psychiatrist because they might run out in the street. They might hide knives in their rooms and under their beds and barricade themselves and um, attack their family. I had a patient um, two weeks ago who strangled his daughter because he has dementia and he didn't he doesn't just didn't know who that is and he didn't know who was in the house so that's when so we see all types of behavior with dementia it's just not a a little docile sad old person and i think people um don't realize that until they deal with it face to face absolutely and i can piggyback on that i had a patient who was in his 70s and um he was hard of hearing and he was watching tv and it's nighttime so he also has low vision so he saw a shadow behind his television and he thought there was someone inside the room. So he kept calling his wife, you need to check, you need to check, you need to call the police. So he became agitated. And unfortunately he struck his wife, uh, you know, accidentally, you know, because he's not understanding what's going on. So he's fearful of what's happening, but there's no way for you to kind of calm him down because you're saying there's no one there, there's no one there. But if the person doesn't believe you or understand what's happening, it's kind of hard to kind of redirect them in that particular agitated moment. Oh no, I feel like they're going to use that in defense of that man that shot uh young Mr. Jaw. No. No. 
No, like they trying to, uh, 866-801-8255. Dr. Nana Yao, do Sakwadi. And, uh, was that better? Sakwadi. Sakwadi. That. Okay. Dr. Danielle Hairston is here. Psychiatrist, uh, and geriatrician. Let's go to Ashley in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome to the Karen Hunter show. Hi. Hi, Karen. Hi, uh, friends. I'm Ashley, and I was calling to talk. A, uh, good. I was. I was just really thankful that you all talking are talking about hospice and palliative care. I actually work for um, our hospice provider in my central area, and thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm not clinical, but let me tell you what I do do. I am tasked with. Um, helping marginalized communities utilize our end-of-life care and seriously ill um, care. And, oh, my gosh, it has been such a struggle um, to just even get communities of color to talk about it. And so what I've done, um, I have incorporated with uh, legacy and wealth building and things of that nature, just keeping the keeping what you have. And, that, and they've responded super well about that. In my role, since I've been there, um, we've incre- increased our patient demographic with our Black patients up to 6%. And I've only been in my role for 10 months. Wow. And so, Again, um, thank it's you just, for all that you do. And, and I just want to say that, you know, that's why I wanted to frame it in the sense that it's a Medicare Part A benefit and not just, you know, a program where you send people to die. It's actually a Medicare Part A benefit. So I think when you frame it in that way, people are like, oh, okay, it's almost like Medicare Part B or Part D or something like that also. It's something that, you know, you're entitled to when the time comes. And it's not necessarily, you know, what they what they talk about, like a death sentence or something like that also. Um, but but yes, uh, I, in the African-American community, especially, we don't, we don't really, we recognize death I think sometimes we embrace death, but what we don't do is talk about death enough or the the process of dying. Because again, we don't we don't. Maybe there's some guilt, maybe there's some fear, but we don't talk about it enough to kind of make it normalized enough so we can have these real conversations about what to do during end of life. And I think what the young lady is mentioning is when you when you tie it into wealth building, you know, having insurance, having all these safety net things in place just in case something does happen, then then the the discussion kind of changes a little bit, and it doesn't maybe seem so sad. And maybe right. seem more acceptable in that moment. And and we should plan ahead because I know if my dad, it was like a couple of more weeks, we would have had to pick up the, the cost for it, you know, and it was a lot. It was like a lot, a lot, a lot. And, you know, it, it becomes a decision then for the family, you know, if we're not prepared for it, which means you have to have enough insurance. That's one of the things that I made sure that my end of life, that I would have enough money so I would not be discarded, you know, cause I don't have children and you're not going to treat me bad. I'm going to have, you know, you, I'm going to be someplace. It's going to be enough money there. But even the, those facilities sometimes don't have the best people. And Ashley sounds perfect. Her demeanor to do this, this kind of work. Did you have one more thing, uh, Ashley, before we let you go? And I was going to say, if you, you know, one of the things I want to leave you guys with, if you don't mind to encourage your providers, the providers to have those conversations with those patients when they're coming in um, for care so that they know that it's not, you know, at the last 48 hours, but it could be, you know, six months or 18 months. And you can even graduate from hospice and palliative care. Um, so it's not an end thing, but it's a thing that will help and help the family together. So we can bring the function back into our families. Man. Oh, I love mm-hmm. that. I love that. And, and as, as a matter of fact, that's one of the first things I do in my initial assessment. We talk about advanced directives and we talk about what you want done at the end of life. Because again, like she's mentioned, you, the, when there's an emergency and someone is imminently dying, that's not where you want to make decisions because cousin, this one, brother, that one, sister, they're all going to disagree. But if you work it into your actual care plan and you plan for all these different things, I, I think one of the most rewarding parts of my, my training was when a family kind of hugged me because we had all these discussions prior to, and when their family member was dying, I rushed to the house and I was there in his last moments. And so the, all the family knew who I was and they're, oh, thank you. So, you know, and it's a little surreal being thanked when someone passes away, but at the same time, you're like, you're, you're mm-hmm. providing that extra level of comfort. So they're comfortable in, in knowing that, you know, their parent was taken care of during that, that time frame. 
866-801-8255. He's Dr. Naniyal Adu Sarkodie. And uh, close. It's, it's phonetically Sarkodi. Uh, oh, shut up, Smith. And uh, Dr. Danny, a doc named Danny, Dr. Danielle Hairston is here. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, coming to grips with the fact that we're not going to be here. Like, I feel like that's, that is something psychologically that we do not, we like, we avoid like COVID, which I'm avoiding. Let's talk about that. Before we do though, I'm going to go to Monique in Ohio. Uh, she wants to talk about Ghana a little bit before I let Dr. Sarkodier leave. Hi. Sarkodier. Hi. Um, I'm sorry. I got something in my mouth. Excuse me. I'm cooking dinner. So um, I went on the education abroad trip to Ghana through my school when I was in grad school. And my husband is airway, so we even before I even met him, uh, we were studying airway language, and so we were able to you know do the dance to dance at the national dance company. You know we we stayed with our host family and we created Andinkra batiks, so we did all kind of fun things. But there was an amazing point where we went to a church event. <laughs> I think it was it was a Catholic church, but it was they were speaking tree. They translated the tree into Ewe, and then for our Senegalese people, they transferred it into French. So it was like three, four languages going on at the same time. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I used to, when I was in York, I went to Ghana Presbyterian Church USA in Harlem, and uh, oftentimes we have guests. We would translate into different languages, so tree, ga, um, English. Um, so, so that, that's common because we want to make sure everyone gets the word, right? So you don't want to just sit there just listening and you, you're not able to pay attention because you don't understand what's happening. You may enjoy the music because it's rhythmic, but you want to get the word also. So we, we make it a point to uh, translate into all different languages so everyone can understand and enjoy. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for that. Yes. Charlotte in Atlanta, Charlotte in Atlanta, GA, welcome to the Karen Hunter show. You're on with Dr. Nana Yao and Dr. Danny. Hey. Hi, hi everyone. Listen, I just when I came on, you guys were talking about the Dalai Lama, and I have to say, with my experience, my mom passed away two years ago. But going through the whole different stages, you have to be able to listen to people and let someone help you. My dad, before he passed in 2019, had been the caretaker and done everything, and I didn't know how bad it was until he passed. I find the guy in Atlanta, he's kind of like, I don't know, a place for mom for black people, I guess is the best way you would say it. And I, you know, once I've been referred to him, he, I was like, well, I need help finding assisted living. He asked me really in-depth questions, some of which I was a little, just like, wait a minute, you're getting a little nosy, hold up. But he was like, no, he said, you're past assisted living. You need memory care. So even going into that, and then and when you Google assisted living in Atlanta, I mean, my gosh, you come up with 2,000 places. He narrowed it down for me and went in with me in each location, and he was like, okay, we smell urine, let's go. Uh, where is your assisted living schedule? Can I see your memory care calendar? Where is your hydration station? You know, questions. So you have to get people to help you, and I just want to thank the doctor so much for the help that you provide. Oh, thank you. And sorry. For, you for that. And I, I think, I think it's important. Um, the hardest thing for when I am helping a family who has a family member who has dementia is not for me to figure out what medications or what I can do to help the family member, to help the patient. It's actually working with the family member. And I say that this is even from the emergency room, I say, this is going to be a very, very tough conversation and it's not going to end right here. But I want to let you know right now about the expectations and the prognosis that we see. And I want to let you know right now you need help. Mm -hmm. And I say that, and I say that from the beginning, you are going to need help. You can't do this by yourself. 
And I just want to be very direct so that you understand that you can't do this by yourself. And that's why health literacy is very important. I had the opportunity to work in palliative care and hospice as a fellow. And at first I didn't want to go there. I was like, it's going to be sad. It's going to be depressing. And it turned it out. It turned out to be one of the best parts of my training actually, because I learned how to address these things and how that alleviates some anxiety and stress and provides support for the family. So it is something that um, behind the scenes, I was uh, texting Professor Hunter and like, you know, your family not discussing things, it's it's leading to some it's leading to some issues and it's leading to some problems when we're trying to plan and get things done and understand what has happened. So for family members to accept the help, and I know there are scammers out here. Let me be serious. I know there's a whole great Netflix show about the scammers in um palliative care and nursing homes and all assisted living facilities, but the families have to accept and understand you can't do it by yourself. Mm. And Alzheimer's Association has a wonderful website um, and they have a 24 hour hotline that is devoted to helping caregivers. And just to go back on the other point about um, those, uh, the patients with dementia with who are in institutions, again, when we're talking about inappropriate sexual behavior, just to bring it back to that, uh, that other discussion, they need to have, the institution has to have a policy on sexual activity or intimacy, right? So if couples are there together, that the staff doesn't get freaked out if they're engaging in activity or being intimate with each other. If let's say a patient in room A goes into room B by accident or they wander and they're in the bed together, it shouldn't be turned into this big circus, right? They have to be appropriately trained as well. And then, and, and then people don't think about this, but if you are someone who's living in an institution, but you, you're able to engage in activity, but you're not able to clean yourself, the staff have to be able to take the time to clean that person up to make them presentable next time. So this all kind of leads into discussions about, you know, ethics and consent and things like that also. But mm. these are all things that, you know, we should really start thinking about if we're putting people in institutions or if they have dementia, they're being inappropriate and so on and so forth. Even mm. even having guilt as the as the uh, the spouse of someone. And let's say you want to be intimate but then you feel as though, you know, they don't have capacity to make decisions on their own. So are you forcing yourself on the person? Mm. <laughs> or, you know, how do you, how do you maneuver that situation? Wow. So, and, and I, I don't think a lot of physicians or providers in general have these kind of in-depth discussions like Dr. Harrison was mentioning to make sure that caregivers understand that this is something that's real and this is something that they'll, they'll need help. And then also provide the resources in the community that can actually help them in, in the long run. Yeah. Well, listen, um, First of all, the work do you do, um, Dr. Nana Yao, is important, incredible. Um, and all of us will need a doctor like you, uh, hopefully, God willing, you know, that we get to an age to have a doctor and we pray that uh, there's someone just like you uh, in the state that we're in. Because you, you practice mainly in uh, the D.C., Maryland area? Yeah, in uh, Baltimore. Baltimore, Baltimore, exactly. And also you do some online as well, which must be more difficult. Uh, a little bit, but it's along the same lines. Just just listening and being compassionate and trying to uh, do the best for the patients as much as you can. All right, Doctor Doctor Yao, thank you for being here. I appreciate you coming through, Madawasi. Madawasi, yes, appreciate you. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.